So we're in James chapter four, verses one through six. So if you've got your Bibles or your electronic devices with the scriptures, let's read that passage together. James four, verses one through six. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So these are challenging words. I'm gonna move, just a second here, I'm gonna move my podium so I, can, I won't cut Chris and Susan off over here, but these are challenging words to us, aren't they, from the book of James. And uh, I just wanna ask you a couple of questions to begin with as we start thinking about the problems in the church among believers that James is dealing with. The first question I'd ask you is, what is the church? Who are we who belong to the church, who are part of Jesus Christ? How do the scriptures describe the church and who we should be? I I listed a few scriptures. What about Ephesians 5? How does Paul describe the church in Ephesians 5, 22 through 32? The church is what? the bride of Christ, that's exactly right. And that's very important in this passage because Paul, uh, James is gonna talk about how these Christians have become adulterers. And in a sense, they've forsaken their marriage relationship and that with God. But the church is the bride of Christ, right? We are united to Jesus Christ. We're in union with Jesus Christ. We're married to him. We're one with him. Let's look at this passage, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 9. So Peter is just to the right side there of James, right? 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how does Peter describe us in that verse as the church? We are, what are some of the descriptions he uses of us who are in the church? Chosen, that's right, we're chosen by God. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a family. Wow, what, a, what important words, what important characteristic words of who we are North Lake Bible Church and the church at large, we are those people. Can you think of yourself as that? A family, a chosen people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. That's who we are. One last verse and then we're gonna dive into James. But Matthew 
Matthew 5, and this is one of my favorite passages, the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus says about those who follow him? Yeah, blessed. Let me read you a few verses, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I bring these verses to you to start with because these things weren't happening among, James, among those believers to whom James was writing. So they were not letting their light shine. That's why I titled this lesson, When the Lights Go Out, Quarrels and Conflict Arise in the Church. So they're not letting their light shine. They're not acting as the bride of Jesus Christ. They're not acting as a holy nation. They're certainly not acting as a family in their quarrels and conflicts. So just remember these words because at the end we're gonna come back and talk about how we avoid these things and how we retain ourselves as the light of the world. So in James 4, one through six, we've come to a very harsh rebuke by the apostle for those Jewish believers, those dispersed Jewish believers to whom he was writing. In fact, it is one of the harshest rebukes in the New Testament given to believers. Paul had some harsh rebukes for the church at Corinth. Our Lord Jesus had some very harsh rebuke for some of the churches in the first chapters of Revelation. But this is certainly one of the harshest rebukes given and for good reason. So James is dealing with bitter quarrels. He's dealing with strong conflicts which have taken hold of the believers and they've, it's led them into covetousness, envy, thirst for honor, rivalry and malice. Their verbal disputes seem to have been characterized by this criticism, slander and harsh words. And James likens it to murdering, right? We're gonna talk about that in a minute. Some people say maybe that was just hyperbole, but you know, maybe James is in fact warning them. If your disputes get out of control, your conflicts get out of control, this could become violence uh, among the church. So in these verses that we're studying this morning, James is gonna bring this harsh rebuke for these reasons, for this bad behavior among the people to whom he's writing. So let's look back and think a moment about chapters one through three because James has actually been building his case and preparing them for this harsh rebuke. <clears throat> so some of the things that James has taught them are confronted them about already in, verses, in chapters one through three. Look at chapter one, verse 22. What did James tell them they should be doing? Yes, right, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Again, he's starting to rebuke them. You must be living out your faith, right? What about chapter one, verse 26? What did James say? Control your tongue, right? So he's already starting to, he's starting to develop this problem that they're having trouble controlling their tongue. And he will develop that at length, didn't he? In chapter three, he's gonna talk at length about the tongue. Look, for example, at chapter three, verse six. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And then verse nine, 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So James is, again, he's already starting to introduce in this letter the problem they're having with their tongue, how they're using their tongue as a weapon in the things they say to one another in these quarrels and conflicts. The other thing James taught us in chapter two was about our religion and about how we practice it, that we shouldn't be practicing it with what? What did we learn in the first, say, 10 verses of chapter two? with partiality, with hypocrisy, right? We shouldn't be setting aside right here by the Wachtels the best seat in the house, right? For the rich people who come in and the, the biker who comes in off the street with tattoos all over their arms and raggedy shoes, maybe no shoes and raggedy clothes, we say, well, maybe we can put you back there in the back. James says, that's not faith. That's not the way we should be living out our faith. That's hypocrisy. We should be living it out with partiality, so without partiality. So again, we kind of get a sense of some of the things, the selfish, covetous things that were happening among those believers that were not true faith. So James really tells them what they should be doing in chapter one, verse 27. That is practicing true religion, right? True religion, true faith. Visit the orphans and the widows and keep themselves unstained by the world. And he's gonna come back to this issue of the world and friendship with the world in these verses we're studying this morning. You think about the world staining us, right? If we become friends with the world, that stain of the world just lives on us. It's like that big spaghetti stain on your white shirt, right, that you can never get out. That's the stain of the world. It's just there for everyone to see if you become a friend with the world. So James tells them they should not become friends of the world. And then in chapter two, the end of chapter, the last half of chapter two, James exhorted them that their faith should be shown by their works, right? That they should live obedient lives. If they claim faith, show me your works. And he used those great examples. Which examples did he use? Examples of faith that James used in chapter two to talk about obedient faith, faith that works. Who was the patriarch? Abraham, and what did Abraham do? What was the great example that James gave us? He offered up Isaac, that's right. James says that Abraham's faith worked. So he's telling these believers, if you claim faith, it has to work. It has to be obedient to God. And here's the example, the patriarch, the father of the nation, he <clears throat> offered Isaac up as a sacrifice. And who was the other example he used? Rahab, that's right, the Gentile harlot, right? He used her as the example of faith who faithfully obeyed and trusted God and protected the spies. So that's what he's saying to them in chapter two as he's leading up to chapter three in the tongue is, you claim faith, show me it works, live it out, live like Christians, visit orphans and widows, don't be partial in the church. And then he's gonna to come to this great passage that Clint taught us last week in preparation for chapter four. That is verses 13 through 18. So in verses 14, for example, he said they had to forsake worldly demonic wisdom, which was leading them to bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, and in fact, acting out a lie against the very truth they claim. James told them that they should possess true wisdom from God 
which showed the fruits of a peaceful, considerate, submissive, and merciful walk that is full of good fruits without wavering and hypocrisy. And he told them that they should be sowing the fruits of peace, right? So James is already telling them, just as we come to chapter four, this is the way you're acting. You're living worldly. You're not living out God's wisdom. What do the Proverbs say about wisdom? What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord, that's right. So they're not living in the fear of the Lord, are they? They're living out this demonic, worldly wisdom, not in the fear of the Lord. And they're certainly not sowing peace, right? Because James says they're following selfish ambition and envy and all these quarrels and fights. They're not following peace. So that sets the basis for now, it all is gonna kind of come to a head. So I thought it was important that we look back to what James has been building up to because it's all gonna come to a head now in chapter four, verses one through six, where he's gonna bring the big confrontation and call them on the carpet as, as it were. So let's look at these verses. Verse one, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? First thing, there's an important note I wanted to say. This is happening in the church. This is not theoretical, right? What, what, is, what James is confronting is actually happening in the church. These quarrels and conflicts are happening and they're happening where? in the church, before unbelievers, right? The church is always before the watching world, right? We are always before the watching world. Nothing we do is hidden in a closet. Even your life as a believer, where you work, where you live, with your neighbors, you are always before the watching world. It can never be hidden. So the things we do, they're judging, right? The things we do, they're seeing, right? They're always there. He's a Christian, she's a Christian. They call themselves to be a believer. How are they acting? I mean, they're acting worse than we do. We're not believers and they're acting worse than we do. So that's kind of the tragedy of this is that all of these quarrels and conflicts are happening before that watching world. And again, Jesus said we should be the light before the world. You can't be the light and live this way before the world. So what is the source of their conflicts. He's very clear about this. Their own pleasures, that's exactly right. Pleasures, desires, some of the Bible's translated different ways, but that's exactly what it is, pleasures. And this is an interesting word that James uses. It's the word that ends up being translated hedonism in the English, right? So when you think about hedonism, what do you think about? What comes to your mind? What is a hedonistic lifestyle? Eat, drink, and be merry. That's exactly right, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual things, but I was thinking um, years ago, I worked at a hospital in Kansas City, and as I took that job, the chairman of the department invited Beverly and I out to a nice dinner, and there was a, a talk being given at the local junior college there in Overland Park by one of the famous band members of the Mamas and the Papas. So, <laughs> so Beverly and I went because, you know, this was gonna be my new boss and he was trying to be very gracious and kind and welcome us to Kansas. And, uh, but the thing I recall about that whole evening was 
hedonism, right? This was the, one of the older band members. He was probably in his 70s by that time. But he talked about their whole lifestyle, the band and all the things they went through. And it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? And it was just hedonism. And uh, to me, it was just that perfect example of living for self-gratification, for what feels good, do it, for whatever they wanted to do, they did, right? Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be these sexual things. It can be other things. How else do we self-gratify? What other pleasures do we seek sometimes that aren't moral, immoral things? Say, James? Materialism. Materialism. That's exactly right. For wealth, for riches, for mammon, right, as the New Testament would say. Yeah, for self-support, yeah. What else? Entertainment. Entertainment, yeah. Oh boy, we do that, I don't have my cell phone on me, but right, we live in this culture where that's what we do, right? We live in an electronic world. How else do we self-gratify? Sorry, just our own peace, yes. Yeah, yes, good. What about our own prestige and pride? We want, we want to lead, we want to be in control, we want people to, to honor us, right? Those are the kind of things, self-gratifying pleasures we can live for. Uh, so it's these kind of things, and probably these kind, a lot of these kind of things were going on in the church that James was dealing with. I think if we look back at chapter three, verse 14, we can get a good sense of what these were again. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So James doesn't give us all the details, but something was going on among these believers where they were looking at their own ambitions, the own things they wanted. That is, the things they wanted to please themselves, right? These were the things they wanted. They're not looking out for the interests of others, are they? Let's look back also at Luke 8, 14. Jesus used this word in one of his parables, and I'll read this to you. This is the parable of the seed and the sower. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So that's the same word that James uses, these pleasures of life, these, the mammon of life, which chokes out, as Jesus says, the word. And not only are these things bad, but what does James say they do? Sin is just not neutral, right? These pleasures and sins that we pursue, it does what? In the end of this, in the end of this verse, the last half of this verse, what does James say this does? It wages war, that's right, it wages war in our members, right? You know this, when we're living in sin, when we're living for our own selves, we're not at what? We're not at peace with God, are we? We're not in fellowship with God. It is literally, if you're a believer, it is literally waging war in your members. So I think James is using members in the sense that the body, the human body, but he also could be more broadly using it in the sense of the members of the body of Christ, that it wages war among the members also of the body of Christ. So sin creates this battle within us. We know in Romans 7, Paul talked about how sin works in the members and he sees sin working in his members. So 
this is the source of conflict. We have to talk about this because this conflict can happen not just among us as believers here in our interactions with one another, it can also happen in other relationships like marriage, right? So it can happen in that sense that we want people to do things for us. We want people to give things to us. We desire things sometimes out of our own selfish ambitions, sometimes for our self-gratification. So that can be the source often of quarrels and conflicts when we're looking to other people to give us things that we want, things, selfish things, not looking out for their, their best interests. So this is kind of self-serving Christianity, isn't it? So James is gonna go on in verse two to talk about what are the consequences of these self-serving sins? Verse two, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So again, lust is this strong desire. James is saying they have these strong desires for the things they want, the things that they cannot get, right? Whatever they want, it's not being given to them, either by people around them or by God. God is not giving them the things they want. So because their desires are not fulfilled, they do what? He uses the big M word, they murder, right? So. Let's turn over a minute to Matthew 5. Let's look at Matthew 5, verse 21. And let's talk about how the tongue can murder. Back, back, pardon me, I'm losing my voice this morning. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka, that is empty head, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. So Jesus isn't talking about physical murder, is he? What's he talking about here? Our speech, that's right, our words, what we say to one another, how we treat one another with our words. He says, you know, if you commit murder, you're gonna go to court, that's right. He said, but even if you hate somebody with your words, if you say those bitter, piercing words, that's just as bad as killing them. So let's all be honest. When you're on the tollway and somebody cuts in front of you, and those things that go through your mind, those things you say, you just wanna kill them right there at that moment, right? I mean, it, it's almost the same. You, that's almost the same thing. It's just those, you know how those things just well up within you. We've all had those experiences, haven't we? When you ever had when those words just came out of your mouth and you said, I cannot believe I just said that thing that I said to this person. You ever been in that situation? You ever look back in your heart and said, why did those things come out of my heart? Why did I say those things to this person? You know, my intent was like a dagger to their heart, right? It was a dagger to their heart because I hated them in that moment. I wanted to hurt them as badly as I could and it was with the tongue. Sometimes we don't have necessarily those thoughts, 
but the words that we say to people have that effect. They have that effect that they kill them. They kill them in their person. They kill them in their character. They kill them in their spirit. They discourage people, right? So those words that we say can have a tremendous effect. Now, I have to say also that in this early church, there were probably some of these Jews who were out of the zealots. And the zealots were a violent people, you know, at one point. Um, and James may in fact be warning them that if you don't watch where these quarrels go, you could in fact have violent physical disputes among one another. But I think the biggest lesson for us, because he's been talking about the tongue so much in chapters one through three, it's the tongue. It's how we use our words with one another. It's the words that we say. Are those words meant to hurt, to slander, to incense, kill? Are they meant to put people down? That's what James is condemning, I think, mainly here in these verses. So then he goes on to say, you are envious and you cannot obtain. That is, we see things, right? We see things that other people have. Have you ever been in that situation, you know? You see things that other people have. It could be material things. But again, it, in the church body, it could just be, say, prestige or pride, or maybe, maybe someone's a great teacher, or maybe somebody's a very compassionate person, or maybe somebody's being honored for the things they're doing and I'm not being honored. And you're envious of those things that are going on. That's the kind of things I think that James is talking about. We want, we want maybe that same kind of recognition or we want that kind of leadership, but we can't get it, right? So all of this kind of leads to this, this downward spiral. And I would say again, envy was a big issue in the New Testament times, right? Pilate knew, right, that the chief priests and the leaders brought Jesus to be crucified out of what? What did Mark 15, 10 say? Out of envy, out of envy. Pilate knew it was because of envy. Envy drove the, the leaders. I, I often think of this. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, they went out and tried to kill Lazarus and Jesus again. It was out of envy because he spoke with truth, because he spoke with authority, because he spoke as the son of God. He raised the dead, he, he made the blind to see and they couldn't do these things, right? And they were gonna lose their power. They were gonna lose their grasp on power. So they had great envy towards our Lord Jesus Christ and they delivered him therefore to be crucified. That's the power of envy. That's what envy can do. It can blind your eyes to the truth and lead you to great sin. Also Acts 5, the leaders, oh, we won't read these passages, but you know these stories in Acts 5 where Peter is actually healing people and it's out of envy that they throw Peter into jail and then the angel comes and lets Peter out of jail. The angels were great jailers, weren't they, right? It was a revolving door with the angels of the Lord in those early chapters of Acts is they, they lock them up and the angels let them out, right? But it was because of envy that they put Peter in prison. So the Jews knew envy well. The Jews knew what envy could lead them to do, what kind of sins and bad things. So the outcome of all of this is they're quarreling and fighting. And James uses very, very strong words for quarreling and fighting. These are like military conflict kind of words. Again, these are not just small disputes. These are major arguments. And then, you know, in the church, there's a time when we have to confront wrong doctrine, when we have to confront bad behavior or bad living, but there are godly processes for these things. 
Uh, it's not that we come to open, verbal, quarreling, and conflict. So it's all a kind of a downward spiral for these believers. The things they're saying, the things they're doing leads them into these open quarrels and conflicts before the world. And even their spirituality becomes self-serving. Look at verse, verse 2b and 3. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures, right? So what James is saying is they're not seeking God by asking him first off for the things they want. So if they, they have things they want, they should be going with a sincere heart to God and asking him to provide those things, right? And what did Jesus say in Matthew seven? We can turn over there to Matthew seven about asking and receiving. Ask, verse Matthew 7, 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So Jesus says the Lord gives us the things we need, right? The Lord gives us good things, the things we need. If we go to him with a pure heart, with the right heart, seeking the things we truly need, God provides those things. But it's not those kind of things, do you think, that these believers are asking for, right? Can you imagine what kind of things they might be asking for? What kind of things might they be asking for in their prayers based on the things we've just been talking about? Money, money. yeah, perhaps money. I wanna be richer because that's been an issue with partiality. What else? Position within the church. Within the church. I wanna be in leadership. I wanna be a teacher, James said in verse to chapter three, verse one, let not many of you become teachers. So maybe that was an issue. Maybe a lot of them wanted to be teachers, wanted to be leaders in the church. And they're saying, God put me in that position. Maybe their heart wasn't humble. Maybe they weren't ready to be a teacher, right? What else? These are great answers. It's hard to know, right? Because James doesn't tell us everything, but we can kind of create and think about these things. The bottom line is they're not asking for things that they necessarily need. They're asking for things they want, right? They're asking for things that they can't have that God hasn't given to them and that they want. I want these things, Lord, and they're asking for it. So what's God doing? He's not answering those prayers, is he? God's not answering those prayers, so it kind of becomes a vicious cycle for them, right? Because they're asking for things from impure motives, things they really don't need, and the Lord knows they don't need those things, right? So God's not answering that prayer, right? And so it just becomes a vicious, vicious cycle. Have you ever been in that cycle before? You've been asking for things, God hasn't been answering those prayers, and maybe you've been asking for things from the right motives. But sometimes we have to ask, are we asking the right thing? Are we asking with the right motives? 
to the Lord. You know, we have to search our hearts to ask, maybe there's a reason God's not answering those prayers. Maybe there are things he wants to do in my life, things that need to change before he answers these prayers. Certainly that's the case with James's readers, right? There are things that needed to change in their lives before he's gonna answer their prayers because their prayers are not the right prayers. They're asking with these wrong motives to satisfy their sinful pleasures. And again, it becomes a cycle of sin feeding sin and God's not going to answer these prayers. So James has a very, very strong judgment now against these believers. Verse four, you adulteresses, those are not necessarily pastoral words, right? <laughs> We're glad Dusty doesn't open his sermons with that word, you adulteresses. <laughs> no, but what is the essence of adultery? What is at the heart of the sin of adultery? Why would James use these words against these believers? Say the pride of the heart, yes. What else is at the heart of adultery? It's unfaithfulness, right? It's unfaithfulness to the one to whom you're united, right? You've forsaken them. You've forsaken your covenant, your bonds with them. So this is a very, very powerful, powerful accusation. In fact, you know, James is so saturated with the Old Testament. This goes right back to the heart of the Old Testament, doesn't it? God accused who? of spiritual adultery in the Old Testament. The Jewish believers, the nation Israel, right? The nation Israel who followed pagan idols and the Baals and offered their children to Moloch and built the high places. He accused them of spiritual adultery, of walking away from his covenant, which he had made with them, turning their back on him. They had committed apostasy in the same way we talked about earlier, we're the bride of Jesus Christ, right? We are united to him. We are married to him in that covenant of redemption with Jesus Christ, right? So when we act like the world and turn our backs on him, we're committing spiritual adultery also in that sense. And so they receive this prophetic rebuke, right? We think of Hosea. Hosea is probably the greatest, one of the greatest examples the Lord used to accuse Israel of adultery because God told Hosea to do what? What was God's command to Hosea? Anybody remember? Marry a prostitute, that's right. Because he said the nation has committed harlotry against me. What a living example the Lord had live out is that he asked his own prophet to marry a harlot because Israel has committed harlotry against him. That first chapter of Hosea is interesting because he has three children and the names of those children, they all have something to do with judgment against the nation of Israel. But it's just like Hosea and even Jesus, right? Jesus in Matthew 12, we won't read that, but in Matthew 12, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of spiritual adultery, an envious and adulterous generation, right? Who had forsaken God. So this is why James accuses them of adultery because they've turned their back on God in the way that they're acting. And he goes on to say, by turning your back on God, you've become friends with who? Yeah, friends with the world, that's right. So if we act like the world, if we don't act like a city set on a hill, like the light, 
we actually are acting like the world, right? We've become, in that sense, friends of the world. So let's look at John 1, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, because the scriptures have much to say about loving the world, don't they? John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's also look at Matthew 6, verse 24. We're going back to the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So, the scriptures are clear, right? It's one or the other, really. We can't be friends with the world. We can't serve the world. Isn't that a temptation in our day? I mean, in so many subtle ways. How do we end up serving the world and becoming friends with the world? It's subtle sometimes, but how do we do that? That's exactly right. Not being countercultural. That's, that's, that's what Susan's saying. Not being countercultural. There's times when we have to say, this is wrong. And this is why. Because God's word says this, right? What about men? Okay, I'm going to pick on the men a minute. What about with our careers? It's very easy to serve the world with our careers, isn't it? It's very easy to build our lives around our careers, around all the things we want the pride we want, the success we want, we want to climb up the corporate ladder or wherever you are, the university ladder. We want those things because we want the prestige associated with it. We want people to recognize us and honor us. It's so easy for us to become friends of the world in that sense. What about Facebook? Okay, I'm, I'm meddling, right? But our social media, this is such a challenge, isn't it, for us becoming friends of the world, right? Because it's so easy for us to have these fake lives or to seek gratification or to seek praise and uh, on social media these days. It's so easy to become friends of the world, to get sucked into this vortex of the world and to friend the world. So what's the problem of becoming friends of the world? And James says it right here. If you become friends of the world, the world, is the world at peace and love God? No, no, the world doesn't love God, the world hates God, right? We see that all over the place. The world hates us. The world hates us for what we believe. The world hates us for what we stand for. They would like to wipe us off the face of the earth. So if you become friends of the world, you've joined that world that is hostile to God. And this is the problem. If you're hostile towards God, James says you are in fact what? What does he say at the end of this verse? The friend of the world makes himself what? 
an enemy of God. So is that a good place to be? Do you wanna be on that side of the courtroom? Do you wanna be an enemy of God, right? You don't wanna be an enemy of God. It's possible for us as believers to fall into this trap, to fall into this wanting to be part of the world, friends with the world, and in essence make ourselves enemies of God. But thank God he has grace. And you know, this is what I appreciate about James's letter too, is these are hard words, right? These are accusatory, condemnation words for these believers, but they deserve it for the way they're working. But James has the heart of a pastor, and that's why I've learned so much from this book. I hope you have come to love this book as I have, because I see the heart of this man, and I see the heart of the grace of God. It begins in verse five. James is gonna talk about how we can be restored for this. So maybe you've fallen into this trap. Maybe you've fallen into this trap of harsh words, you're in bitter quarrels and conflicts with people here in the body, people at home in your marriage, there's a way out. It's God's sovereign, restorative grace. Verse five, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God is in Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God dwells within you. And the Lord God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all in fellowship. He desires the Spirit within you. And when you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit. God does not want to see the Holy Spirit grieved. He jealously loves and desires the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, that you live in peace and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the power of the Spirit who lives in you. And James, I think, is trying to remind these believers that the Spirit does dwell in you if you're a believer. God dwells in you. That's the power to change, right? The Lord God who dwells in you, and he zealously desires that you come to change. And verse six, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Some have made a point of this. Why does he say a greater grace? Maybe it's because if you're a believer, he's given you the grace of salvation, but he has abundant grace. He has restorative grace for you as a believer if you fall into sin. He has this because of his loyal covenant love. You know, that's the thing that's so amazing, I think, too, about the Old Testament. You read again and again, we've talked about how Israel committed spiritual adultery. But again and again, when they fell on their knees and repented, God did what? He restored them. That's exactly right. God restored them. It's just amazing. Even some of the most wicked kings, when they fell and repented, God restored them and spared their lives. That's the nature of our Lord. He has mercy and grace. So if you're in a situation now, you have to understand that's who he is. If you come to him, as he says here, with not a proud heart, but a humble heart, God has abundant grace. It's Romans 5.20, sin abounds, God's grace superabounds, right? God's grace abounds far greater than any of your sins, right? But you have to come to him in humility and seek him in repentance and he will restore you. So let's talk of just a few minutes about some of the applications of this passage. So first application I have here, serious conflicts may arise among believers in the church and within other relationships such as marriage. 
We have to look into our heart motives and ask if the source is selfish, worldly desire for our own pleasure and self-satisfaction. So I think that's very important. When we get into conflict, we have to step back and ask ourselves, is it me? Am I seeking something selfish? Do I have the spirit of Philippians 2, 5 of counting uh, others' interests is more important than my own? Where is the source? What's going on with this conflict? And are we allowing our self-desires, selfish desires to erupt into conflict when we can't get what we want from people, right? So that's what happens. We try to manipulate, we try to get things from people, things that are selfish, and then when we don't get it, we erupt into conflict. So like James is saying, we have to recognize that this is really spiritual idolatry, right? This is really spiritual adultery, in essence. We're turning our backs on God when we do these things. So we can even look back at James 3, verses 17 and 18. This is the way James would really have us to, to live, right? 317, to live in God's wisdom, wisdom that walks in the fear of the Lord, wisdom that helps us act rightly in every situation because we depend on him. Wisdom from above is first pure, not full of wrong motives, right? Not full of our selfish motives. Then peaceable, it's gentle and reasonable. Think about that when you get into conflicts. We're generally not pure, right? We're generally not peaceable, right? We're not gentle with one another. Think about that as you get into conflict. That's, if you acted out these principles, you wouldn't get into a lot of these conflicts, right? It's full of mercy, right? It's often the case that maybe you're in a conflict with somebody, and I've been there, and you know, maybe they were kind of on the wrong side, but you know what? I always say you fall on the sword. You know, I'm full of mercy. That's what you should do. You should fall on the sword and be full of mercy to the other person. Turn the other cheek as the Lord would teach us. That's being full of mercy. And good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And in essence, in verse 18, we must sow peace, right? We should at all times seek to sow peace among ourselves, especially in the body of Christ. Be a conflict annihilator, right? (laughs) That's what you ought to be in the church of Christ is to put water on these conflicts, be peaceable, merciful, gentle with one another. We don't have time to go all the way through Colossians 3, but I've brought this passage up before, and I think if you wanted to make this a missions and aims statement, this is the passage. If you lived out Colossians 3, meditate on this, you wouldn't get into these situations. It would put a lot of these situations to rest. But Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 is such a fabulous passage about how we as believers should live. And I'll just summarize those. Paul tells us that we ought to, well, I'll just, let me just read this as we close. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as what? just as the Lord forgiven us, right? Isn't that the key? Isn't that the key? We ought to forgive others as Jesus Christ who bore our sins, who knew no sin, died for us. 
We ought to forgive others in the same way. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So again, if we have compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, if we bear with one another, we're not gonna end up in these bitter quarrels and conflicts in the church. This ought to be our mission at Northlake Bible Church that we are these kind of believers. And you know, if we work out this kind of life and live as these kind of believers, back to the verses we started with, right? We'll be acting like the bride of Jesus Christ. We'll be acting like a holy nation, right? And we'll be acting like the light of the world. We'll be acting like a city set on a hill. Wouldn't that be transformative for all the world around us to see, for this neighborhood around us to see? And I know they're already seeing this in us, but these kind of believers who love one another, who serve one another, who bear with one another and forgive one another. So this is a great message from James to us. We should take this to heart. We each struggle with these problems, but this is the message that we should walk as the light of the world. We should walk in God's forgiveness. We should forgive one another. We should be quarrel annihilators, okay? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for these words from James. These words which cut to the heart, we have a hard time seeing ourselves as adulterers, adulteresses. I just pray, God, that you would help us to see the times when we befriend the world, the times when we have hurtful words that may come out of our mouths, even the thoughts and the attitudes, God, that may lead us to these words. Help us to be selfless. Help us to put the interests of others before our own. Help us to remember the example and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, may this body love you with heart and soul and mind and strength. God, bless us as we worship. Bless us as we sing our praises to you and bless us as we celebrate missions in the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.